Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word today. We're from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And if you've been around Oak Park a while, this should be a passage that is pretty familiar to, to you. Verse, uh, verse 26 of chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to his disciples, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding. Lord, with a, a deeper sense of worship of exactly what you have done for us. And Lord, in what we get to celebrate and what we get to worship. Father, I ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to be working on those of us who are gathered here in this moment, in this place. And Lord, for, to be working in the hearts and minds of those who are with us online right now and those who will even watch at a later date, whether it be soon or far distant in the future, Lord, you already know through your sovereignty. And Lord, I pray that as we open up our hearts and our minds to your work, your spirit will speak to powerfully implant your word, your truth, your meaning for our lives in our time in worship today. Lord, no matter what it is that we perhaps are going through, if we're in a season of just high stress and high uncertainty, I pray for your spirit to bring words of calmness and assurance and peace. Lord, if we are struggling just in terms of obedience and the lure of the world is pretty strong, Lord, I pray for words of steadfastness. Lord, I pray for, for words and impressions in our mind and our hearts for courage and conviction. And Lord, if some of us are grieving, and some of us are this week, because we've, we've had to say goodbye to people very, very dear to us. Well, more accurately, we've said until we see each other again. I pray that your spirit will bring comfort in our grief, knowing that as Jesus is Savior and Lord, he is the one who has given us victory over death. In all these things, Lord, in our acts of worship, I pray that my words do not get in the way of your word, but that you speak, that you work, that you bring glory to yourself as Jesus is lifted high and as we look to him as Savior and as Lord. And it's in the name of your Son, O Father God, that we pray, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Would you please be seated? Very special welcome to everybody who is here today. Uh, make sure you fill out a connection card. We'd love to be able to connect with you. You could also let us know about uh, any spiritual uh, questions or matters that are going on in your heart and mind. Download a digital bulletin so you know what's going on in the life of the church. For those who are joining with us online today, I want to say a very special welcome to you. Thanks for being a part of the Oak Park family today as well. And there's one person who watches us pretty faithfully every week, and I want to say a very special hello to Tom this morning. So Tom, glad you're with us, and I look forward to hearing from you again real soon. For those others who are watching online, remember you can text in comments or questions, prayer praises or prayer requests to 805-481-7092, and we look forward to hearing from you to best help you grow spiritually 
as well. All right, as we are working our way through a, a book called Quest 52, 52 weeks in the life of Jesus, his, his ministry, his teachings, um, the way he was experienced and encountered by others, we come to honestly, and I really hope the author of the book, Mark Moore, isn't watching this, and I'm pretty sure he's not because he's in the Holy Land right now. This is a kind of a dumb question. What did Jesus think about himself? Well, first off, it's much more important question is what do we think about Jesus? But we can be pretty certain that Jesus knew exactly who he was and why he was here. So for today's sermon, there's actually two parts. A brief explanation of what Jesus thought about himself, but a little bit of a deeper explanation on why it's so important that we think of Jesus exactly the same way as he thought about himself. There's a lot of opinions about Jesus. There is no shortage of theories. Every Amazon, you can go into Amazon, you can look at hundreds of thousands of books about Jesus. And there's a lot of uncertainty, at least from human perspective, as to who he is. But Jesus was pretty clear. Years ago, I had the chance to meet and, and spend a few hours um, and, and have lunch with a retired philosophy professor from Cal Poly fascinating man, and it's kind of one of those divine things, how our paths cross, now we got a chance to meet. But as we were having lunch together, it was really fascinating because he was absolutely fascinated and captivated by Jesus. But he was not a believer. He was not a follower. And as we were kind of exploring, I was trying to get more of his background and, and kind of figure out where he was coming from. One of the sticking points that he struggled with is he just could not accept Jesus as anything more than a human being. Uh, the son of God terminology was very metaphorical for him. He, he couldn't imagine God actually becoming flesh. And that, that's a big leap. I can understand that. He obviously did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So that was a, that was a big stumbling block as well. But one of his biggest sticking points that we discussed, and I was actually kind of confounded when he, when he brought this up, he talked about how Jesus struggled with his self-identity, figuring out who he was. And he talked about, he goes, as Jesus grew into his role of what the people thought about him. And I'm like, have you read the New Testament? <laughs> the, the earliest experience we have of Jesus as a young boy, he's around 12 years old or so, when he, the parents went back from Jerusalem to, to Nazareth, Jesus stayed behind. He was at the temple debating with the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And he was engaging them. And they said, Jesus, what were you doing? And he said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house about his business? As a 12-year-old boy, Jesus was pretty secure in his identity. He was very self-aware much more than we are at 12 years old or 55. <laughs> Jesus knew who he was. There's two events in the final hours of Jesus' life prior to his death that really explain this and demonstrate this and picture it so powerfully. One of them is what we looked at last week when Jesus washed the disciples' feet an absolutely almost unthinkable act for any kind of respected religious leader. 
someone who was so highly esteemed by his followers to humble himself so much as to disrobe a sign of slavery, to bow at their feet rather than them bowing at his feet as a beloved teacher and instructor. He bowed at their feet, and then he performed the most menial of tasks, the task reserved for the lowest of the low of the slaves, the washing of feet in a culture where everything was open-toed shoes and dusty roads. And in that culture, you actually just hoped they were dusty and then it wasn't something else. But Jesus lowered himself, and as he did this, he says, I am doing this as your Lord and teacher. Jesus was very aware that he was Lord, he was their teacher, and that he was giving his disciples an assignment to serve likewise. It takes a lot of confidence and self-assurance and strength of identity to be able to humble yourself and lower yourself and do that for your followers. So Jesus knew, but the foot washing is, is, abs, is absolutely critical to understanding what happened next. Next is the him and the disciples sharing together in what we know as the Lord's Supper. But for them, it was the celebration of the Passover. And in the midst of the Passover celebration, Jesus breaks from the normal script and he interjects, he interpolates himself into the meaning of the most historic, most revered, the highest and the holiest of all Jewish celebrations. Jesus claimed for himself to be the fulfillment of the entire Passover celebration tradition, and all of the meaning. It is both of these things, our Lord and teacher humbling himself and serving, and then our Savior explaining exactly what must happen with his body and his blood. The disciples and Jesus are sharing Passover together. The Passover is an annual spring tradition. It's a festival. It's actually a seven-day celebration, and it culminates with the Passover meal, a very elaborate meal. And the whole point of this historic and celebrated event was to honor God for his deliverance of the Jewish people for more than 400 years of being enslaved in Egypt. If you recall the story, you may recall some of the high points. That's the story of Moses confronting Pharaoh and God sending the plagues to demonstrate his power. And as Pharaoh's hard heart against the plea of deliverance and freedom for his subjugated people, as his heart hardened, God then hardened the heart as well. Basically, God says, fine, if that's the way you want to play, we'll play. So Pharaoh went in with a hard heart. God hardened his heart even more, and the, the, the plagues escalated until the final plague, the most absolutely horrific, heartbreaking thing that we can think of. The angel came over the land of Egypt, and every firstborn son died, both human and animal. 
It's horrific to think about. But in the midst of that very extreme lesson to break Pharaoh's hardened heart, which included the death of his own firstborn son, there was a path of mercy and grace and deliverance and protection given to the Jews. It would be that whoever slaughtered a sacrificial lamb and then took the blood of the lamb and would smear it on the side posts and the upper post over the door, every home that was protected by that blood, the angel of death would, would pass over that home and the life of the firstborn child inside would live. They would survive. That's what Passover celebrates. That extreme example of God's judgment perfectly balanced with God's mercy and grace and deliverance. It was the blood of the lamb that covered them and provided for their deliverance. 1,500 years later, the Passover was still celebrated yearly by all faithful Jewish families. And the meal in which the celebration culminated was a very elaborate occasion. Every place setting and every element had its place and everything had to be done and arranged perfectly and recited perfectly. It was very traditional, very precise. And for that millennia plus, millennia and a half, the Jewish people had been reciting how God had rescued and redeemed and delivered them. Passover feast included roasted lamb in honor of the sacrificial lamb. It included unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and wine. And all are symbolic of God's saving acts that night. But it's in the middle of this celebration, this very elaborate, very intricate, very ordered ceremony of, of when to eat and what to eat when and how to do it and how to partake and all of these things that Jesus interjects himself. He is the new sacrificial lamb. He is the avenue of salvation through his blood. In the traditional meal, the unleavened bread represents the haste with which the Israelites had to leave Egypt because after God broke Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh relented and said, fine, get out. And it was a very quick escape from Egypt. And in some ways, it's the unleavened bread, the, the bread that was baked and then didn't have time for the, the yeast to, infl to in, 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 infest, <laughs> inf integrate into the whatever the bread is, for it to rise. It means they had to bake it and pack it and go. Didn't have time. To, it was a symbol of the haste, but also the, the not waiting around. And it reminded them what they left behind. The daily routines of waiting for the freshly baked bread to rise and then beef or sandwiches and everything else. And symbolically, there's also things with leaven being sin and unleavened bread, not having sin and some, some spiritual imagery from other places in Scripture. But when Jesus says, in the midst of partaking of the unleavened bread in the Passover, somebody says, this is my body. It's a reinterpretation, a redefinition of that sacrificial lamb and the past life in Egypt, in slavery. 
But instead of a political oppression, instead of physical bondage and chains and, and oppressive things like that, it is slavery to a far greater oppressor. Slavery to sin that Jesus was setting not only the Jews free from, but every person, Jew and Gentile alike. This is a pretty radical reinterpretation of the Passover meal. And then in Passover, there was four cups of wine that had to be taken at certain intervals. And as each cup represented a certain part of the ceremony, each cup was a, uh, a commemoration of a passage from the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And basically, each sentence was, was what would be recited as the cup was partaken from. Exodus 6, 6 and 7 says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Couple number one. Cup number two, I will free you from being slaves to them. Cup number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And then cup number four, at the end, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. In saying that the wine of this ceremony is his blood, by which forgiveness is granted. Jesus is declaring himself to be the fulfillment of line number two and line number three. The, the cup was probably taken and shared among the disciples as the third cup was passed. I am the one who will free you. I am the one who will redeem you. Then as Jesus said, after that cup was passed and as the disciples shared in that Jesus says, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine again until that day when my Father's kingdom is made complete. The fourth cup in the Passover supper for the disciples was untouched. And if you cross-reference the ending of Exodus 6, verses 7, along with Revelation 21, 3, you get the picture of when Jesus will finally partake of the fruit of the vine again. It will be in the, in the celebration feast that we have in heaven. As all of, all of creation is brought under the authority of Jesus and as Jesus then turns all under his authority over to his Father, the culminating plan of God. So cross-reference those two verses. That's how it is fulfilled. As Jesus and his disciples fulfilled what was done in the Passover, it became known as the Last Supper. This is literal because it was the last <laughs> supper for Jesus because he would be crucified in simply a few hours. In Christian, worship, in Christian worship, the partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine is now called the Lord's Supper. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's also referred to as communion, which that's some of the King James uh, English uh, from, from, uh, from years ago for 1 Corinthians 10. Some traditions call it the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is from the Greek word eucharisto, which means to be giving thanks or thanksgiving. And that's from Mark chapter 14. And so we know what Jesus thought about himself. 
he was pretty certain who he was and what his mission was. But the greatest question ever asked was Jesus when he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? That is the one question upon which the eternity for each and every person hinges. Who do we say Jesus is? And while the options are many, the answers are very few. Jesus gives us the answer in his teachings, but in this practice that we celebrate as Christians and Christians of all stripes and all flavors and all backgrounds and all traditions all understand and celebrate communion. Very differently in some places, but all celebrate it. And it's one of these things where we worship, and when we do this, we are acknowledging exactly who Jesus is. We are bringing our understanding of Jesus, and we are aligning it with his self-understanding. He is Lord and teacher and Savior. So let's look at what we declare when we have communion together. And as a church family, we do this every week. But the Lord's Supper is one of the four core practices of the early church. When Christians got together, this is what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Breaking of bread means both, yes, a meal together, but also in the midst of that meal, pausing to remember the bread as the body of Jesus and the wine as the blood of Jesus. This is how the early church functioned. It's what they did when they got together. It was the centerpiece for Christian worship. It was one of the four core practices. That's why communion is so important. And after initially meeting together daily, Christians soon developed the practice of meeting on the first day of the week because of the resurrection. You see, the Sabbath is Saturday. The seventh day is Saturday, and that's when the Jewish people worshiped. That's the day they set aside. But Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. As God completed creation and rested on the seventh day, the day after the Sabbath is the new creation, Jesus' resurrection. And that's why Christians have gathered together from the earliest of days on Sundays. The very first Christians, being good Jews, worshiped both Saturday and Sunday. They worship both. They double-dipped, and that's okay. But we honor Jesus on Sundays because the resurrection took place on the first day of the week. And communion was central to those assemblies. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Acts 20, verse 7. The Lord's Supper is this beautiful time, this beautiful time to have as an act of worship to not only praise Jesus and praise God for what they've done for us, but to offer of ourselves to affirm and to declare to the world as well. It's a time of worship. It's a time where we remember Jesus' sacrifice of his body and his blood for our sin. The verse we read every single week as we share in communion together, and we'll be doing this again in a few moments. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. That's what communion is. It's remembering Jesus. And we know from this passage in 1 Corinthians that that's what the earliest Christians did. They recited it. They believed it. They centered their worship around that. Body and blood. And it's remembering. It's a weekly reminder. It's also proclaiming our steadfast faith and our hope in Jesus. Communion affirms simultaneously the death of Jesus and also his resurrection. The next verse on that passage from 1 Corinthians that Paul writes is this, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think sometimes we read that and we hear that and we, and we, we, we kind of miss the subtlety of it. We proclaim his death until he comes. Well, if he's dead, how can he arrive? How can he, how can he be coming? How can we be seeing him if he's dead? Oh, yeah, he's not. Communion is where we celebrate Jesus' sacrifice, but we also subtly affirm the sacrifice did not, he did not stay dead. He is alive again. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes a radical statement of faith and hope. But communion is also a time of deep personal examination. It's examining our own relationship to the Lord, and, and I always use this as a very simple pattern. It's a time to reflect some honest spiritual assessment. It's a time to repent, and yeah, we can name some specific sins, it's a time to renew, renew our faith and our trust in Jesus, and it's a time to rejoice because we are forgiven. Paul puts it this way, so then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. He doesn't elaborate, but I think it is a very safe assessment to say and to understand that would not be a good thing. And in an, un in an unworthy manner is to, to trivialize it, to be duplicitous, to be hypocritical. And, and every Christian struggles in sin is not a hypocrite. Hypocrisy takes intentionality. Hypocrisy is not weakness. It is not frailty. It is not succumbing to the, the temptations and the desires of the world, even though we want to fight them. It's not making mistakes. It's not stumbling. It's not falling. Hypocrisy is intentional deception and deceit. It is saying one thing while you know in your heart you are lying. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not when the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In fact, communion affirms that. Why do we have communion? Because we sin. Because we, we, we're st we still need the sacrifice of Jesus. 
And it's good for us to realize that and affirm that and to fall on his mercy and his grace and his goodness and his compassion regularly in worship. So whoever then eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. I've been in pastoral ministry over 35, 36 years now. Bible colleges don't have math. I can't do math very well. Man, I have never seen somebody die after taking communion. That would have been super cool. (laughs) But Paul's words here, when you eat and drink, when you, when, you, when you are worshiping inauthentically, when you are worshiping with duplicity in your heart, rather than an honest and open expression of, I need the mercy, the grace, the goodness, the kindness, the love, the patience, the forgiveness of Jesus. When we just lay it all out there and we bear our souls and, and we, we offer ourselves, that's honest worship. But when we're duplicitous and we, we have a hardness of hearts, we are partaking, we are worshiping and partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Paul says that's why some of you are weak and sick. And it may not necessarily be actual physical sickness and weakness. It may be why there's such spiritual weakness within you. It's why there's no spiritual victory of, of, of winning over sin. It's why there's a, a seeming distance between you and the Lord. There's a coldness in the heart. Because we're missing the point of communion. Jesus offering himself as our sacrifice. Jesus willingly letting himself be beaten and tortured and cut so that he bled. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus did for us. Communion is such a perfect act of worship because it proclaims who Jesus is. It affirms what we believe about him, but also about ourselves. And then lastly, communion is our common union in Christ. In this act of worship, we jointly declare our allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord There is no other thing on this earth that unites such a broad diversity of people. In the words of Scripture, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. There is no Scythian or barbarian, slave or free. All are one in Christ Jesus. Our ethnic differences only matter from this perspective and from a heart not aligned with the Lord. Economic differences, educational differences. There's no shortage of things in the world that will seek to divide us, but Jesus is the great uniter because he died, if he died for one, he died for all. And none of us are Kmart blue light specials. 
Kmart's defunct. I'm probably going to have to update that analogy. None of us, none of us are from Nordstrom Rack. Does that work better? Email me some suggestions for better illustrations, okay? My email's on the bottom of the sermon notes. Jesus paid the same price for all of us. Some of us, even though we're, we're bruised and we're banged up and we're broken and we're probably not, not all that great, great to look at, Jesus paid the very same price for us as he prayed for those who seemingly have it all together. You see, the, G, the blood of Jesus covers all equally. The same price was pr- paid for each of us. And as death is the great unifier of humanity since everyone who lives dies, Jesus' death is the great unifier for us because his death is what pays the price for every single one of us. And no matter what you may think about yourself, you are worth it to Jesus. That's why he did what he did. That's why he went to the cross. This is my body offered for you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let's be sure we know who Jesus is. And let's praise him and worship him appropriately. I would like to have uh, Mike and the team come back up as we prepare for a time of communion together. A core practice, not only the early church, but a core practice of worship here at Oak Park as well. I'd like everybody to go ahead and stand as we prepare to sing. And during this time of worship, this is the time to examine yourself, to pray, praise, repent, renew your faith, rejoice in forgiveness, ready your heart for receiving the elements of bread and juice. After the song is done, simply come forward in a nice orderly manner in the the communion elements, post-COVID style, uh, sealed and sanitized, will be available for everyone. If you would prefer to remain standing where you are and you don't want to come forward, just raise your hand and communion will be delivered to you where you are. But use this time to examine yourself to pray, to praise, to reflect, and to honor Jesus for who he is and what he has done.